Ready? Born ready. Another episode of Where to Party At, your favorite political podcast. I'm your host, Saba Long. Thank you for tuning in to yet another episode, week after week, giving you the news, what you need to know, what's happening in Atlanta, in Georgia, and across the country. So we are going to dive right in and talk about the gubernatorial election, and none other than Democratic nominee, Stacey Abrams. So she gave a big speech last week about the economy, and she focused a lot of the conversation on working and middle class families. We're going to go through the speech. So let me first have you listen to a couple minutes. They believe in the ethic of work and the equity of opportunity. Most Georgia families are doing everything right. They work full-time jobs. They're putting a little away when they can, despite rising prices. Yet middle-class families are struggling. But they've been taught to believe they must do it all on their own. They are upholding their responsibilities, and yet there's still just one illness or one bad turn from a financial precipice that never seems to recede. A precipice they never want their kids to know or to fear. And likewise, working-class Georgians are scraping by, going from day shift to second shift before pulling out their phones to drive and hustle in a gig economy, yanking so hard trying to make those ends meet. And yet they know that on-call scheduling means they will never know if they can make it to that parent-teacher conference. But then they get chastised for not being involved enough in their child's education. They, They hear about historic low unemployment, and they know because they have more than one of those jobs. They hear about good paying positions, but they are afraid of the reality that they can't get to them because they don't have public transportation or affordable housing. For those who have been left out or left behind, they worry that no one cares. That homelessness and mental health crises, that food banks and failing schools are the best that they can expect. And this has been especially true in rural Georgia, particularly during the two decades of Republican rule As of 2021, more than 110 of Georgia's 120 rural counties had a poverty rate over 10%. 10 of the counties with the lowest per capita income in the United States are located right here in Georgia, but they keep working. They keep striving because they know they deserve more. All right, Keith, I know how much you care about Stacey Abrams and how much you want to see her win. (laughs) So. So what's your reaction to that? I mean, I feel like half of what she said was right. You know, I definitely agree, especially when going to college in Fort Valley. I was exposed to so many country cities that I did not. You know, they say if you are like in Atlanta for a long time, you forget how country Georgia is. And as soon as you leave out, you're like, oh, man, this is rural. So, like, yeah, I agree. I feel like that also piggybacks off of that black farmer's issue that them not even receiving the funds yeah so then that's why i feel conflicted because when i hear her say all that and she's right but then like the current administration has the power to kind of change some of that so then what are you telling us you're going to do 
because the part I didn't agree with was just the hyperbole of, well, there's high-paying jobs, but they can't get to them because there ain't no public transportation. Ah, well, not. That's a thing, though. That's not a thing. Because, tell me how that's not a thing. Because if you're going for a high-paying job, you're not catching the bus to a high-paying job. You're catching the bus to mm. a mid-level paying job. Like Okay, well, there's a, a high. If I'm making $10 an hour, a high-paying job to me is a $60,000 a year job or uh, $80,000 a year job. Okay, so then, then that's why I see and then, so that's why I disagree. At 60,000, yeah, you should catch the bus, but 60,000 and especially in Atlanta, that's not high paying. That's It's living. high paying compared to like, I'm working at McDonald's and I'm making $12 an hour. Mm. That's an $60,000 a year job with benefits is definitely high paying compared to an hour. In comparison, it is. But when you're making a blanket statement the way you are and then the the jobs you were describing as far as infrastructure and all that, I'm listening and I'm like, oh, yeah, that and high paying jobs. Oh, yeah. You mean like that new Microsoft building that's being built? You mean like these new plants that are being built in the country, but then they're importing their people into the city. So high paying means. 80,000, 90,000, 100,000, because this is what these tech jobs are. Okay, well, People even aren't those, catching buses to they those. are. That's called Greta. Greta buses that you see, those are like the commuter buses for folks that live in Gwinnett. When she said public, or live see, like that's, in that's the com- exurban counties and they come into the city. Yeah, those are commuter. I, the way the structure of the sentence sounded and that speech sounded like she was talking to low income because she said low income and she was talking about the parents who can't get off work and all that. So, yeah, that's. Low income, but I hate when they try to marriage the low income with the super high income. Like there's just a jump and there are other steps in between that you could be doing. Like, tell me what you're actually going to do for the in between. That's OK. That's that's, that's actually next on the list. There you go. See, that's why so she talked about <laughs> she talked about the need to grow and build a skilled workforce. So how do you jump from low income? to high income. Take a listen. My Georgia Thrives Plan will grow the economy for everyone and will focus on jobs and wages, on rural revitalization, on small business investment and economic justice by investing what we have in what we need. But how do we get it done? First, we have to expand our skilled workforce. Growing a skilled workforce requires leveraging all assets, including partnering with technical colleges, small business, labor unions, to generate more than 20,000 additional apprenticeships. I'm going to do this in fields ranging from building trades and construction to coding and healthcare and agriculture. These apprenticeships should prioritize young people, not ones, the ones who are not heading off to college, but the ones who are starting their futures early. All right. So there is a huge need for electricians, plumbers, you know, those types of jobs where you go get training, you start off maybe in, during your training making $14 an hour, and then in a couple of years you're at $30 an hour. Um, that's the cool thing about these types of workforce programs that she's talking about is that you actually get paid to learn, and then you go into that job and you're making, you're basically doubling your hourly rate. And then the thing is that a lot of these are union jobs. So that means you're getting great benefits as well. 
So I will say kudos for that, right? You said, listen, y'all. Sabas oh my goodness. Sabas a genius, y'all. He said, said kudos to kudos Stacey Abrams. What? No, you know, you know what it is. You know what triggers me is it's the buzzwords. I think that Democrats have to stop using buzzwords because you're going to trigger everybody. Like she had me, had me, and then she said, "In economic justice, like what is that?" You know what I'm saying? Because we don't get justice, so that's a. I wouldn't say that, but if she took that out of everything she just said, she 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 would get me. But then now, okay, I so see, just ignore that word, yeah, and and listen to the rest. Yeah, but then I, but now since she said the word, she has to tell me what the just she she showed everything else. What's the justice in this economic plan? And if I don't see any justice, then why did you say that word? I'm going to get to that a little bit oh, later. But I saw it was good. I got you. I, I got you. I knew you were going to come with all these rebuttals. <laughs> Look, Stacey, you should be listening to this episode. We're going to help you like Facts. win. Facts. Okay, so another big thing that Stacey Abrams talked about is free technical college. And she's also proposing needs-based assistance to help cover the cost of traditional four-year college. Georgia is one of the only states uh, that does not have needs-based assistance. We have hope, but that's not needs-based. So how is she going to fund these two big ideas? Take a listen. Quick, quick question. So what do you mean by needs-based? This, that's not the same as... So Pell is needs-based, but that's federal. But there's nothing at the state level that's hmm. needs-based... For, for students and families. See, that's the stuff I feel like you got to double down on because I'm thinking hope, but like you said, hope, everybody hope is academic. Hope. You and can you, you get, can be you can come from a five hundred thousand a year family and get hope. You can come from a twenty thousand dollar a year family and get hope. And I didn't even know states did needs like I said federal pill. I didn't know there's a quote unquote state pill. I didn't know states did that. Yeah, like, some states, more progressive states. But, but I didn't know it was an option. Yeah, like see, I. I like that. So, all right. Another, another good one. Another what? good one. Let's listen. Let's all listen. right. <laughs> 11, I crossed the aisle to save the Hope Scholarship, and I would never jeopardize it. But Georgia must open the pathway for those families who need a little extra help to secure a better future for their children. Georgia is one of two states in the country and the only state in the South that does not offer need-based financial aid for students. Yet 40% or more of our college students can't afford basic costs, and they report experiencing food and housing insecurity. My administration will fund the empty need-based financial aid program by using lottery reserves to seed this fund. But I know these plans for technical college and need-based aid are only as good as our ability to pay for them long-term. And that is why I am calling for a constitutional amendment to allow sports gaming and casinos in Georgia. So this has been something that the state legislator has been talking about for at least since Governor Deal was in office. And that was in like 2008 or so, nine. Do we want casinos in Georgia Obviously, Atlanta would be a hot spot. Savannah, probably, maybe Augusta. So you've got three or four kind of areas around the state where folks can gamble as they see fit. The religious community in the state's probably not too keen on it. There's also evidence that casinos primarily hurt poor people, right, because they continue to gamble and 
there's questions, right? There's benefits like funding education, and then there's the real life. How does this impact a family? You have someone who has a gambling addiction. And then so that would be really just curious and interesting to see Atlanta as a casino town. To your point, the addiction's already here. That part's already here. That's not a... I could see if we didn't have any type of gambling in Georgia and people would be brand new, but nah, this is a... This, this, this sounds like a, a good idea. You know, my only thing is, you know, where's the equity? If we can just make sure it's equitable. I think that would definitely be a big yeah, part of the conversation. That'd be my pushback. Like, if it's not equitable, I don't see any way for it to be equitable, then nah, we can't do it. Yeah. I know MGM has been trying for years to come to Georgia. I'm thinking about all levels of jobs. This sounds like so many jobs will come. I've been hearing that's what they kind of want to do with the underground. Sounds like a good idea. I mean, the way and those will up. probably be union jobs too, like they are in Vegas. Yeah. All right, Stacy. All right. Another thing she did that might spark your interest, Keith, is she talked about how to help small businesses in Georgia. Minority-owned businesses only count for about twelve percent of state contracts. So, meaning people and businesses that do work for the state. And black Democrats have been trying to push the governor's office to do more around making sure that black, particularly black businesses, are able to compete on state contracts. So take a listen to what she said about that. But we also have to make certain that more of our small businesses get to compete for growth. Right now, the same big companies win the same bids over and over. And those looking to move up can never find a way in. But that's a solvable problem. As governor, I'm going to create cluster contracts. Basically, we're going to allow multiple entities to jointly bid on sizable contracts with the state. Those contracts that currently go to the same vendors year after year because they're the only ones big enough to qualify. But under this program, for example, a $1 billion project would be broken into two to five smaller pieces so that multiple smaller vendors can take on a major bid of 200 or $300 million. They can hire employees and deliver on time without waiting for a turn that will never come. All right. All right, Stacey. I like that, too. I like that, too. I like, I like, listen, man, when it sounds good, I had to admit, you know what I'm saying? I was telling you before the pod, her first go-around, I was out there stomping for Stacey, so I'm, I'm not fully all the way against it is just do I trust it you know what I'm saying what's the you know and then how do we and this might you know what and this might not even be a Stacy thing maybe this is something else I'm have to find on the other side just accountability how do we hold Stacy accountable I don't want the Barack Obama effect oh we that's the real first black woman that's real there. and now what happened to this cluster thing like oh well, yeah next time Next time, like, nah, yeah. nah. So, it, but good job, Stacey. Right, good speech. Good speech. Great, great, great plan, too. Great. This first plan I've heard, I like the plan. Good plan. All right. Now, I will say, as someone who has bid on government contracts before, the idea of clustering makes a ton of sense. It is incredibly complicated. You have to have, you know, things like certain insurance requirements and being able to say, like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm able... And I wasn't like physically building anything. All I was doing was consulting. And I still had to have million dollar insurance, right? Which just sounds so wild. So 
you know, those are the types of things I think would be a big help for small businesses that they can join together and compete on major contracts. And it sounds like done properly, it would create generational wealth. It exactly. Very similar to Maynard Jackson's plan with the airport. Where he yes. Where all the concrete bricklayers and was like, look, if you can do a driveway, we get a 10 of y'all. Y'all can do, the, do this together right. and do a runway. So now, now we're the, doing it for the whole state. It sounds like it would be very... uh. Very life-changing if done equitably. Right. And that's the thing is if done equitably, because even Maynard's program was exactly that. It was a game changer. But there are still businesses today who qualify as minority disadvantaged businesses, and they're making hand over fist. The whole point of the program is that you graduate, and then the next crop of minority disadvantaged businesses can come in. So if you are in your 60s and 70s and you've been in this business for 30 years, it's like something ain't adding up, right? The next generation should also be in that program and you should be the mentors who've gone to that next level. And so that's something I hope happens with this state program because it is, it will be, it, I wouldn't even say just as big, it would be bigger than the airport program. So these are the types of things that I think help make clear the difference between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. I think these are the types of things that energize voters, that take get people off the sidelines, because there are right now a lot of people who are on the sidelines that are like, you know, I'm, I haven't heard anything compelling enough to get me to vote for you. And this is the type of stuff that I think changes that for her. I do have one question. Out of everything I heard, what would be the main thing you say that is kind of democratic in a sense? Because some of this stuff, it sounds like if Kemp wanted to, now that he heard it, he could implement, you know, before. He could, but don't hold your breath. So the governor is supposed to be releasing his economic plan. Y'all are hearing this on Tuesday. I think he's actually releasing it Tuesday or Wednesday. And from everything I've been told, it's not going to be this detailed. Like, it's going to be a kind of an overarching, here's what, you know, I want to do to help grow the economy, but it's not going to be this focused around small businesses and around minorities. But we'll yeah. see. We'll see what he says. Can't wait. Y'all tune in. <laughs> All right. Um, something I just want to briefly mention, because it impacts a lot of other things, Atlanta Public Schools is considering selling or trading 16 vacant buildings in land that they own. So most of these are schools that have closed down, like Lakewood Heights and Capitol View Elementary Schools. So why is this worth talking about? Because we have a serious, massive affordable housing crisis in this city. And APS and the mayor's office, I think they are, but I just want to reiterate that they should be having a conversation about how do we keep this land in the hands of the government and don't sell it to private people, to private entities and find a way to use these properties to actually address our affordable housing crisis. This is a real opportunity. And then also the, just another thing about that is it's also clearly shows you how few people are putting their kids in public schools in Atlanta. The fact that you, we have, elementary schools that are closing. All right. Philip Evans, 
is striking again. Philip Evans is the guy who is responsible for shutting down Music Midtown. And he says, I'm not done yet. He's like Atlanta's villain. Uh, He said last week that he is going to challenge Live Nation's ability to ban guns at amphitheaters in Georgia. So just a reminder, he basically said Music Midtown is held in a public park and he and any other lawful gun owner has the right to carry a gun. And even though Music Midtown has a no-gun policy. And so he told Music Midtown, if you continue with your no-gun policy, I'm going to carry a gun and I'm going to sue and I'm going to win. And so that's why they pulled out, allegedly. So he had unsuccessfully sued to carry a gun at the Atlanta Botanical Gardens. That's public land, but the gardens is in a long-term lease with the city. And so the judge ruled that because it's a long-term lease, it's kind of quasi-private property. Now, amphitheaters also have long-term leases. And so he's going to see, basically, if a judge would consider an amphitheater to be different than a botanical garden, because an amphitheater is something you go to kind of a one-offs. The garden is something that there's always something there every day. So this is what he said to the media. (laughs) For a long time now, there have been various pop acts and 70s acts that I've wanted to see. So I do plan at some point to challenge that, and that is carrying a gun in an amphitheater. Because I really want to go to one of these concerts and to maintain my right of self-defense. So (coughs) this dude is literally about to single-handedly kill live music in Atlanta. Philip, if you are listening, give me a call. Like, I, I just want to talk to you. I don't know what you're doing, but you, you're messing up my concert rotation. I just want to understand what the heck is the deal. Is it really that necessary to carry a gun in an amphitheater or to carry a gun at a music festival? <laughs> what am I missing? All right. In other news, Ahmaud Arbery's killers were sentenced for federal hate crimes. They'd already been sentenced for state hate crimes. The next day, the city of Brunswick added his name to Albany Street. Or is it Albany? Which one is it? Albany. Albany. My small city's called Albany. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It will now be known as the Honorary Ahmaud Arbery Street, which is really cool. Take a listen to an interview that his family and his lawyers gave to a local TV station. It's a day Ahmad Arbery's parents say they never imagined. I knew Ahmad would be great as a child, but I didn't think that we would he would be great as a dispatchers. City leaders renaming the entire length of Albany Street in downtown Brunswick after Arbery Tuesday. They will be installed as a legacy and a remembrance designated as the Honorary Ahmad Arbery Street. The street is home to the now iconic mural of Arbery. This is the city where the tragedy happened at, and for them to honor Ahmad in this way was, was huge. It gave my son life. When I pull that sign down, I just think about his whole life. Every time I look at that sign, me and my family, we just going to have to think about his life. Lee Merritt, Arbery's mother's attorney, says it symbolizes healing for this community. It means that, that they want to preserve his legacy, but it also is an acknowledgement uh, 
that the city had a role in this, um, both as victim and victimizer, because it was Glynn County officers, as I mentioned, uh, who empowered these men, these vigilantes, to go after Ahmad in the first place. So to see the city begin to take steps to begin to try to rectify that means the world to me. Arbery's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, says now that the family has justice, they want his name to serve as a reminder. It's very, very important that Ahmad left at a very um, young age of 25, and my hope and dreams are that Ahmad's name will, legacy will last forever. A sign his name won't be forgotten. Ahmad Arbery's parents say the fight is not over, though. They have their sights set on former district attorney out here in Glynn County, Jackie Johnson. She was indicted on charges for how she handled the case from the start. No court date has been set yet in that case. Reporting in Glynn County, Kaylee Tracy, First Coast News, on your side. That's really nice. And I am curious to see what ends up happening with that district attorney, because she is the one that basically tried to cover this up. No, the way his parents been on it, I wouldn't be surprised if she go down too. Could yeah, she should. They were trying to get off that life sentence on the federal charges, right. and, and the, yeah, they weren't having it. Exactly. So I like that. I like that. Yeah, that's good. All right, y'all. You know we've got to give you an update on what's happening in the world of labor and unionizing. So, Trader Joe's workers in Minneapolis just won their union election by a massive, massive amount, 55 to 5. It's the second store in the country to unionize. The first one was in Massachusetts, and there's a store in Colorado that might be the third. One of the reasons why workers are unionizing is because the company no longer offers the type of retirement benefits it used to. There was a lot of stress around the pandemic and how Trader Joe's, what changes they required of workers during the pandemic. Now, unlike Starbucks, Trader Joe's says they are prepared to, quote, immediately begin discussions with our collective bargaining representative to negotiate a contract. Now, if that indeed happens, as it should, I'm curious to see if this will prompt the National Labor Review Board to crack down on companies like Starbucks because they are refusing to negotiate union contracts, even though people have voted to join a union. Starbucks fired a union leader at the Buffalo store, and in retaliation, all the workers walked out in protests. Amazon fired four workers in Albany, New York, who were pro-union. And then Chipotle closed the store in Maine that voted to unionize. These are the types of things and tactics that we're seeing from companies in, in retaliation for workers pushing for and better wages, uh, improved work conditions, things of that sort. Now, one thing that I came across that I found was interesting, not a surprise, but it's just, it kind of really hits home about the difference between white collar workers and everyone else, especially as it related to the pandemic. So workers who did not have access to paid leave, they lost on average $815 in wages for a week of work that they missed during the COVID pandemic. And that's according to a new report from the Urban Institute. In total in America, workers missed out on about $28 billion in wages from March of 2020 to February of 2022, compared to the previous two years. And then who was hit the hardest on this? 
workers who earn less than $25,000 a year, and then Hispanic workers and black workers, and of course, women. So 66% of Hispanic workers and 57% of black workers went without pay because of absences that were prompted by illness, actually contracting COVID, or having to take care of a family member or kid or other obligations. And so, you know, I think about when I had COVID in December of last year, I was basically, you know, home on the couch, coughing and sore and all that crap, right, for a week, but it did not impact my budget, other than having to pay for, like, Theraflu. But it did not, there was no less money coming in because I was sick. Um, and And then, you know, this is just... It's really frustrating to see because these are issues that are fixable, Mm. right? It's just a matter of having paid leave and enforcing that and saying, as a country, if you were employing American workers, you must allow them X number of hours in a year for paid leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, too, they should have did something for essential workers, especially because that's kind of what happened, too. It was like they made everybody stay home, but unless you're right. cooking food or servicing people, oh, you're an essential worker, but you still don't have paid leave. That's right. That Right there, I think that's what broke the camel's back. That's why you see a lot of unionizing, too. So yeah. I'm glad I like it. Yeah. I saw something on Twitter, I think it was the other day, and it, in Japan, they actually, if you get sick with COVID, they actually send you, the government sends you a care package. Can you imagine in America, like our government sending a care package to a a person in need that's sick? I I, I don't know. They do. I I got a joke. They do. But I say fast to the pot. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay. All right. In other union news, uh, there's a new report from Radish Research uh, that talks about organized labor. Some really interesting things here. So, number one, organized labor is flush with cash. So, in 2020, organized labor had $18.3 billion in revenue. Overwhelmingly, 85% of that was from membership dues and related income. And they spent $15.6 billion. So, that meant that they had a financial surplus of $2.7 billion. And when I say organized labor, I mean all labor unions across the country. Not like this is one big pot of money. Organized labor has doubled its assets, even though union membership has actually declined over time. They employ 23,440 fewer staffers in 2020 compared to a decade ago. Even though, again, there's a 19% decline in their workforce. So basically what they're doing, organized labor, is they're hiring fewer people. So they have fewer employees, but they have increased those employees' annual compensation. Another interesting thing, in 2020, the Department of Labor proposed that unions disclose their total spending on organizing versus collective bargaining. But the Biden administration listened to the unions and they stopped the Department of Labor from doing it. The Biden administration has generally been seen as pro-union. Another thing, 
If organized labor's financial and membership metrics follow the same growth rates as the previous decade, 2010 to 2020, by 2030, so that's in seven years or so, labor will have more than double their assets, even though they will lose nearly a million members. Really interesting there. So the folks who did this research are proposing three kind of big things to move organized labor from their current kind of posture of, hey, call us if you need us, to a more offensive, like being on the offense, proactive approach. And so one of the things is hiring 20,000 new organizers, which would be an annual cost to organized labor of $1.4 billion. Uh, number two is boosting funding of alternative labor organizations. Think like the Amazon labor union. That's not seen as you know general organized labor. So it, boosting funding for them. And the third thing is radically increasing strike activity. So in the last decade, organized labor has spent just under $1 billion in strike activity. But the folks who did this research are proposing they spend a billion a year on strike benefits. And strike benefits is basically making sure that even if you go on strike, you still receive your check. So the idea here is that the American worker is in crisis mode. You have people that are working two and three jobs in the gig economy. You've got harder work conditions. And then it's just more expensive, right? It's more expensive to take care of your family, to feed your family, all of that. And so they're saying, like, now is the time to go big. And you need to be very aggressive in actually addressing these problems rather than kind of just waiting for a crisis to occur, like, Meet the moment is basically, you know, the idea here. If organized labor does this, it would fundamentally be a huge, huge shift. Imagine across the country, you have 20,000 people organizing and encouraging people to go join a union or create a union. We've talked about Amazon, Trader Joe's, Starbucks, Apple, that would just be a fundamental shift in how we talk about labor and it forces companies to acquiesce at least to some extent, or it just makes the fight that much more pronounced because then the companies are going to be doing tactics to union bus and it's going to become so obvious and blatant that it shifts the narrative and it shifts people's thinking of, okay, these companies are being greedy and they're not protecting the American worker. All right, so on to party poopers and party starters. Turn out the lights. The party's over. The party is over. Close the gates. What? All right, party's over. Everyone go home. Are you sure you want to invite this party pooper to poop on your party? I'm the party pooper. <laughs> This week's party pooper is Kristen Cinema. She is one of two Democrats who forced the rest of the Democratic Party to go along with what she wanted for her vote on the Inflation Reduction Act, a.k.a. Build Back Better Light. So 
One of the things she said is that they had to kill, I mentioned this in the last episode, they had to kill something called a carried interest tax increase on private equity. Now, the Associated Press reviewed her campaign disclosures and found that since last summer, she has received nearly $1 million in campaign contributions from private equity, venture capital, and hedge funds. <laughs> one private equity manager, just one person alone, he and his family gave her $23,200, including donations of $5,800 each from his college-age kids. I'm pretty sure his college-age kids weren't donating to Kristen Cinema because, oh, she's, you know, a wonderful senator. <laughs> so things like this are a reminder of why we see Congress approval ratings so low, why trust in government is so low, and it's a reminder that we've got to have real aggressive campaign finance reform because what continues to happen is folks who are in power and who lobby are able to get what they want out of senators and congressmen and that's a real problem let's get it started in here What's rule number one? Party. All right, our party starter, some good news for a change. Uh, this kind of gets to what we've been talking about the whole episode. Uh, the state of California is the first in the country that's going to provide free lunch to all public school students. There are so many reasons why this is worth celebrating. One, it's making sure that kids have a balanced meal at least one day, one time out of the day. It helps parents. It reduces that stigma of like, oh, you're on free and reduced lunch. Oh, my family can afford to pay for my lunch. Why are we subsidizing your lunch? Right. It just levels the playing field. I remember once there was a congressman in Georgia who said kids that can't afford to pay for their lunch should clean the school. Remember that? And it's like, like, what? Like we, this is, that is utterly insane. And this is something that other countries do. And it's normal. You don't pay for lunch in most places in other countries when you're going to school. And I hope this is the start of other states doing this. It's a good thing. Kids should not have to be worried about if their family can afford to feed them. And I'm glad to see this happening. All right, y'all, that is today's show. You'll note we did not talk about, you know who, Donald Trump. I'm just going to wait and see what happens. I think there's there's so many people like overreacting about what the FBI did, what Department of Justice did, and we don't have all the facts. So I'm going to hold off, keep my powder dry, and see what ends up coming out over the next few days. And then we can talk about it. All right. That's the show. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. And then, of course, we've got Who Runs Georgia coming up soon. Stay tuned for that. Until next time.